decades spending mass focused on alleviating poverty. British public's trust in charities is declining. Funding pressures are increasing. Technologies like blockchain are revolutionising our work. The SDGs are crucial to ensuring no one is left behind. Power is shifting to the global south. The Bondcast, exploring the debates in international development. Only 1% of official aid assistance goes directly to developing countries. One of the major themes of last year's Bonn Conference was empowering the Global South and exploring the role that Northern NGOs can play in addressing the imbalance of funding, resources and power. This episode of the Bondcast comes from a session at that conference where experts from across the globe discuss how we, as a sector, can work with Southern partners to help them better lead their own development. So good morning. My name is Irongo Houghton. I am, uh, of the last five minutes, the executive director of Amnesty International Kenya. I started two, uh, two months ago. And i um, very happy to be your moderator and uh, semi-discussant for the topic that we have uh, this morning. This is the session on leading from the global south. And I think the way that I would frame it before I start by introducing my, um, uh, my panel is to uh, remind us of the very powerful words of Degan Ali maybe two years ago when she stood up and she made this very powerful pitch at a humanitarian conference. And she said that it was actually unacceptable and a travesty of justice that 1% was the figure that was reaching the global south and that 98, 99% was essentially being spent in domestic capitals or somewhere in this quicksand of the development industry. It's two years on, and it's a great opportunity, I think, to have that conversation uh, because many of us are still within this industry, within this sector, within this movement, and looking for new ways of having greater impact on issues of dignity, issues of rights, and issues of justice. This morning, we have a number of great uh, panelists who are resource persons for our discussion. We're going to try and get as much conversation going as possible. And first of all, I'd like to uh, very warmly welcome uh, Amka, uh, Ambika, the uh, Sat Kunarethan. It's not a Kenyan word, so um, Kenyan name. So I'm going to do a little bit of practicing, I hope, uh, a little, uh, a little uh, uh, during this session. She's the chairperson of the Nilan Tiru Chavalam um, Trust. Um, Jessica Horn is the second panelist. She's the director or program director of the African Women's Development Fund. And uh, the third panelist is uh, Ronald Sibis, who is the deputy head of the Civil Society Division at the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So very different um, set of colleagues uh, from different parts of this animal that we call the development sector. Um, but great perspectives, as you will no doubt hear in the next uh, 30 minutes or so. Two years ago, I spent a bit of time with a number of organizations uh, discussing IANGO, the charter. Many of you are familiar with this. And uh, it made a very strong uh, presentation, really, that there were five traits that we needed to uh, interrupt um, as international uh, organizations. And really, the conversation ended up, I think, uh, with this image. And it said, no thanks, we're too busy. We don't need to innovate. And I think the challenge is that actually you do need to innovate because you are rapidly at the end of uh, the tail end of an industry that is actually losing its relevance. It's being challenged more and more uh, domestically, and it is completely not fit for purpose in, telling, in terms of dealing with the muscular political elites that are now beginning to dominate many countries in the global south as they are beginning to dominate uh, countries in the global north. 
So there is a new uh, paradigm that we need, and hopefully we can uh, investigate that together uh, with the panel. So let me invite very quickly uh, Jessica to start off with a couple of uh, remarks, and then we'll turn uh, to Ambika and um, uh, Roland, Ronald. Thank you. So I just wanted to ground it uh, practically um, to just describe what the African Women's Development Fund is and does, just to give, again, a sense of a grounded example about funding from the South to the South. So AWF was set up about 17 years ago. It's a women's fund. So women's funds are public foundations set up usually by and for women. Um, uh, they may be constituency focused, for example, an LBT women's fund, or they may be regionally or nationally focused. Um, or focused, again, on indigenous women, you know, constituency-based. And so the concern at the time, and so this was 17 years ago, the conversation was already there about leading from the South, um, to ensure that African women had a say in the funding decisions around what was being prioritized and what was being resourced when it came to African women's rights work. Uh, the founders, the staff, the advisory are all situated in African women's rights organizing um, and so have connections to and understand the region um, and also then take a great amount of care in terms of listening to, getting feedback from and reprioritizing vis-a-vis -vis what's happening um, in the field. So AWDF had began uh, because also at the beginning the, the income levels were relatively small um, AWF began with relatively small grants, but over the years, as we've managed to raise more money, we've also been able to give larger and larger grants. One of the key aspects of the model is that we, we do grant making, but we also realize that most uh, civil society organizations in the South, is the case, with this project-based funding model, have almost never had investment in their systems and structures. And so beginning a capacity-building initiative was critical because it was a way to be able to invest in systems and structures around some nuts and bolts issues like financial management, communications, those kinds of things, basic but critical. We also realized that, uh, uh, unfortunately, for whatever reason, I mean, I know why, uh, historically, African women are always um, talked about um, but rarely listened to and highly undocumented in terms of what we do. And so we were really concerned to also have a stream of our work which was invested in knowledge production, to be able to both document what exists but also generate new knowledge around strategies, approaches, thoughts, analysis, responses to policy, to cultural changes, to social you know, uh, ideas, to models of organizations, the whole shebang. Last year, we actually launched an initiative, which is the first of its kind in the world, actually, um, which was a futures trends analysis, looking at the future of Africa and the role of women within it. Um, so it looks to the future of 2030 using existing data, which is limiting um, because it's primarily development data, which means it's all focused on impact on GDP. So there's lots of questions that are not answered. But we, we at least began to map it so we have a sense of it. Um, so because we had this concern, a political concern, um, around leveraging money that would then go directly to uh, the activists and actors, movements, organizations, agents um, operating in Africa, and again, we fund women-led women's rights organizations based in the continent, we have been part of two partnerships, which are both about leveraging more money for the South. The first is the Amplified Change Partnership, um, which launched in September 2014. Um, its focus is on sexual reproductive health and rights advocacy, primarily in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, but also with funding in, in other regions uh, in the north of Africa, the Middle East, and East Asia. 
And so far, 44 million euros has been committed to fund Global South advocacy organizations working on sexual reproductive health and rights um, to around 510 organizations. And there, there was a concern that there was a, a, a range of grant sizes Right? So it was about funding the spectrum of kinds of organizing from a 10,000 euro to 1.2 million to make sure that all of the sector was actually being um, accessed and supported through the fund. The second is Leading from the South, um, which is an initiative um, that began its grant making last year. It's a collaboration between four Global South women's funds with support from the Netherlands Ministry of Foreign Affairs, who were keen actually to, do, to push this discussion and provide a practical example of how you fund South directly. So we're funds, so we have the due diligence mechanisms, etc., but also the networks and contacts, because as I said, we are from a constituency, so we're sort of embedded in it. Um, so that's a 40 million euros over four years, focused on advocacy and lobbying um, to advance women's rights in, uh, across the global South regions. I think the only area that's not covered is the Pacific, but otherwise we cover all global south regions. Um, so, I mean, for us it's been, um, you know, it's, it's been an exciting development. Um, but what we also find is that as we do this, we also push up against a lot of assumptions. One of them, uh, in terms of funding south and funding African women, is the idea that all African women are grassroots. Well, let me tell you something. African women are incredibly diverse. Uh, and so, of course, there are women. I don't know what grassroots means. I think it's a class analysis, and nobody wants to say that. But anyway, um, you know, African women are incredibly diverse, okay? Um, the second is that all African women need as a priority is income generation. So, of course, I mean, statistically speaking, and in terms of, like, numbers of people, um, yes, African women are unfortunately uh, overcounted in terms of the world's poor. However, even so, we even we as AWDF never uh, exclude an analysis of economic security and justice from the work. We understand that even if people are doing work on other areas, that's always an issue to address. However, it's not the only issue. There are many constituencies of African women also demanding visibility, voice, access to decision making, guiding leadership of nations. Right? The constituency is broad. African lesbians. African women with disabilities, African women in rural and urban settings, both. An increasingly large constituency of young African women, urban, who have very different needs and concerns from their older grandmothers. Mm. Okay? Women living with HIV and all the intersections in between. Thank you very much, Jessica. Let me invite uh, Ambika to um, share some opening thoughts. Okay. I think first I will just, uh, once again, like Jessica, come from a practical perspective and uh, perhaps um, list the, the, the issues or the problems that we have encountered uh, when receiving funding. Um, and um, so uh, a study that was conducted by the Neil and Thiruchalvam Trust, we found th this is amongst local organizations that receive funding from bilaterals as well as multilaterals, is that they increasingly, um, donors, uh, they prefer to fund short-term projects, um, sometimes even as short as six months, instead of long-term projects. So if you're talking about social change, there's no way you're going to bring that about or achieve it within a year or even two years. Um, secondly, we found that um, 
although we say that uh, many uh, programs tend to be donor driven and they could be what we found is sometimes and this is important in repressive contexts where donors or um, humanitarian organizations in order to maintain presence would actually stop funding or supporting certain kinds of work like for instance human rights work or in sri lanka we found many uh, immediately after the end of the war were not willing to fund psychosocial work because that was frowned upon by the government of the time um then we also found that uh, as a, as a country that uh, is recovering from war uh, particularly in the war affected areas in order to rebuild broken down social networks it is important to also encourage small nascent volunteer organizations that had come into being but these were small organizations that did not have experts who were not proficient in english so they could not actually write you know grant proposals nor prepare budgets and so if we found that the the donors were funding the larger urban organizations in colombo rather than these organizations because they were not thought to be professional enough and and that meant that there was a gap if you're talking about peace building post war reconstruction etc there was a gap and also many of these small organizations did not have the capacity to absorb large grants and we found donors would often make large grants you know small grants meant that the administrative costs were too high for them so then once again of course if you ignored their lack of capacity and provided the money you found then that also created other problems within the organization sometimes we've seen organizations fall apart due to too much money which brings me to my next point is while we complain about too little money sometimes too much money can also have an adverse impact like for instance in sri lanka after the tsunami in the 2002 uh, peace process we found there was an influx of donor funds and that was not dispersed within a well thought out framework which resulted in in even simple things like in certain areas the rents shot up through the roof you found that people were not willing to volunteer anymore the salaries once again rose exponentially and you found young people were not willing to work for log- local organizations and instead preferred to work for the un or for ngos and um, finally the the we find increasingly uh, the larger ngos the larger even human rights organizations uh, have begun opening local offices and due to the funding crunch they do not receive funds from their headquarters but are encouraged and sometimes forced to raise funds from within the country which means they are actually competing with the local organizations and clearly they have you know staff that are far more skilled and able to get a larger piece of the local funding pie Thank you very much Ambika. Let me invite uh, Ronald and we 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 deliberately told him off stage that he's going to be under a lot of pressure in this conversation. Um so I don't want to stress him a little bit but um he's going to fix this for us. I calm down. Huh? I calm down. Uh now I, I, as you were starting from a, a more practical perspective uh um perspective from the Netherlands and I'm not going back to why we think supporting civil society wherever is important i can go back to the 16th 17th century i will won't do that uh, don't worry <laughs> uh but still uh over the years the netherlands has supported civil society in in very many ways but something i think 
three, four years ago, fundamentally changed in our policy. Uh, and that is supporting civil society in the South because it is important, because it's an importance of a, to have a strong and vibrant civil society as such in whatever and which country there is. Uh, independent, autonomous, critical voice, uh, providing checks and balances to the government. Uh, we have supported civil society uh, a lot, like service delivery NGOs or civil society organizations. We wanted to move back to the original idea of and purpose of civil society organizations, which is its political role it serves in a country, next to private sector, next to the government. Also within that context, civil society organizations, movements, uh, activists have become stronger and stronger in southern countries. Something we haven't heard that much over the past day and a half is also how civil society organizations are under pressure in so many countries. Civic freedoms are at stake. Civic space for organizations is at stake. So get, given that context, uh, we move towards supporting influencing role, a program supporting the imp influencing role of civil society organizations through strengthening them in their lobby and advocacy capacity. So focusing specifically on their political role. We have done that in a broad program of 25 strategic partnerships. And I think what is interesting here is not only the word partnership, it's a partnership between Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs together with uh, civil society organizations, but also strategic in the sense where do we find common goals and common interests, but also in a program that is called then Dialogue and Dissent, where is the dissent? Where do we don't agree with each other. Is that a problem? That's not a problem. But we need to be open on that. Uh, a democracy cannot be a true democracy when you disagree with each other and you accept that you disagree with each other. Next to supporting 25 strategic partnerships, we are supporting, and Jessica was already referring to that, a leading from the South program, a grant-making program to support women's funds all over the world, direct funding. We are experimenting with direct funding through our embassies as well and through a small fund which is called VOICE and which supports specifically smaller organizations for marginalized groups. The program itself, it's innovative, as I said. It's not only uh, a grant maker, a funding uh, program, but it's also a partnership. It is strategic. It's built on a specific context and actor analysis, and it works with a theory of change to be as flexible as possible. But still, then I come to the theme of today's discussion. Still, 
one out of the 25 partnerships is leading from the south. Only one out of 25 has a southern, although it was open to everybody all over the world, only one southern organization is in the lead of those partnerships. So what happened? What we try to do right now is what we, where we are in midway with this program is thinking on the next phase and how we can improve and how can we fund much more directly southern organizations. Go beyond the, the rhetoric, change power relations and how uh, communities could determine their own solutions have an increased legitimacy in the things they are doing. But what does it mean for us? I could, and I think we will discuss that, what will it mean for you as northern NGOs? I'm not sure if there are a lot of bilateral donors in the room, but what it does have implications for us in the Netherlands as well. Is that possible with the way we are operating? Is it possible with the whole accountability system we have uh, the results-based management uh, systems we have in place. Uh, it will be challenging. Uh, it is an innovation. It is a small program. Uh, but still, uh, I hope that with this innovation, with the lessons we learned from it, we can break down that vicious circle of northern NGOs, northern bilateral donors, who are in power because they hold the money. For myself, coming from a Kenyan context, um, there are kind of like three things I'm very uh, aware of uh, over the last three years that have shifted, I think, fundamentally in terms of the power relationships between international uh, non-governmental organizations, the state, and uh, citizens. The first is that, you know, uh, the, the, anybody who's been watching um, our... Um, uh, the aftermath of our elections in August uh, last year and has watched the walloping that um, uh, ambassadors have received um, by trying to call for dialogue and for mediation between the two big political parties is probably at a point where um, they will realize that the uh, word of an ambassador is no longer what it used to be. And therefore, bilaterals and multilateral institutions have waning influence in many of the countries uh, across the global south um, as there are other, there are other uh, commercial and um, creditor countries to work with. The second one is how useless, and I'm being deliberately very provocative, how useless closed bureaucracies are um, in terms of responding to fast differentiating and fast moving contexts um, across the many countries that uh, we work. Um, many of our structures are politically risk adverse. Um, we are not willing to speak truth to power. And more often than not, we actually just try and keep our heads down so that we're not hammered by these, as I mentioned, these very muscular political elites, uh, both male and female, uh, but primarily male. The third challenge, I think, really relates to um, what some people have called governance apartheid, that many of our institutions continue to be run. Um, I think it's something like 60% of our boards and our chief executives are not from the global south, yet 60% of our funding or more is spent in the global south. 
and therefore the, our capacity to be able to speak um, to the primary audiences, the um, uh, organizations and the um, institutions and the public institutions out there is increasingly more and more difficult. Um, and we've seen that, particularly in the Kenyan context, with the attempts to cut uh, foreign funding uh, down to 15% um, uh, about three years ago. And what was interesting uh, with that was that very few, and I can name them uh, in terms of organizations if you ask me nicely, very few uh, chief executives of international organizations were willing to actually have a decent conversation with a rapidly uh, dark um, uh, minister of the interior. And dark is not a color uh, reference. It's actually a, a reference. I have to be uh, very careful these days. It's more of a reference to um, the space we were moving into. Um, so I, I think for me, there is really a question about, you know, where are we as an international NGO movement? And I, joining Amnesty, I still struggle with this um, uh, internally, and I think there are lots of opportunities. But I guess the first question for me is, what do we have to give up in order to come at this problem from a different and more empowered perspective? What is it that we would have to give up uh, to do this? And then perhaps secondly, you might want to dwell on the question, why is it so difficult for us to shift the power? that we say we all want to. I think let me just very warmly thank once again uh, Ambika, Jessica, uh, Ronald, and all of you. Thank you.